In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So we're, finish, we're finishing off the series, Difficult Passages from the Bible. We've had Dr. Amir with us for the last few weeks where he went through where the Bible came from, some um, questions about um, uh, the authenticity of the text, translations, and then he went through diff- some difficult passages. And we'll wrap it up today by looking at some practical ways we could read the Bible. Okay, so the first practical tip to read the Bible is to, is to actually read the Bible. And that sounds like sarcastic, but part of a practical tip to read the Bible is actually to read the Bible without any, um, like, you know, sometimes we say, I don't know how to read the Bible, or I don't understand it, so I'm not going to read the Bible until I learn how to read the Bible. Part of learning how to read the Bible is just to simply read the Bible. Very simple. And Father Thomas Hopko, um, one a famous uh, Eastern Orthodox priest, used to be the Dean of St. Vlad's. He passed away a few years ago. Um, who I'll quote a lot, really pushes this point. First practical tip to read the Bible, read your Bible. Okay? Second thing about reading the Bible is, as we saw, as we saw in the last um, few weeks, the Bible can't be treated like another book. It's not a novel. It's not something that we, like we don't get warm in front of a fireplace, grab a shea, and then read it the same way we would read Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings or something like that, right? The Bible is different to that. And sometimes um, when we treat the Bible just as another novel, we get really frustrated because we're not getting something from the Bible that we expect because maybe the Bible isn't there for that purpose. So we'll talk a little bit about that today. When reading our Bible, uh, considering that, as Dr. Amir showed, it's not like any other book, it's important that we read prayerfully. So we're not just reading, but we're reading prayerfully. Father Thomas Hopka has this lovely um, comment on this. He says, Here I would say, absolutely, that anybody who's going to understand the Bible has to be a praying person. Even if that, pray, if, say, that person doesn't really believe in God, right? He goes, even if, that pray, if they're praying to whom it may concern. So if they don't believe in God, they say, look, I'm going to give this a shot. I'm praying, if you're out there, before I read uh, your word. Okay? Even if they're saying, God, if you're there, guide me. But there has to be some kind of seeking, so to speak, before the face of the Almighty God. Even if you don't know who that God is, even if that God is, there has to be a kind of a hypothetical placing of yourself in that context, in that condition. So we have to start in the spirit of prayer. So I think the seeking person who is not a believer has to somehow act like a believer or say, Lord, if you want me to be a believer, make me a believer or lead me into faith, if that's what I should do, if that's the truth. But you have to be open to it. You can't be close to it. You can't read it and say, I'll never believe it no matter what. You can't read it and say, this is a pile of garbage and baloney filled with contradictions, and that's the end of it. You, can't, you just can't do that. If you do that, forget it. Nothing's going to happen. Absolutely nothing's going to happen. Very clear to the point. We have to approach reading the Bible prayerfully. Okay? So, for example, some people like to say the, um, the verse um, the, that Samuel said when he heard the Lord. Speak, O Lord, for your servant, insert your name, hears you, as a short prayer. Some people start with our Father. Some people will start with a psalm. Some people will start with silence. Okay. Dr. Amir covered this a little bit, but I think it's important just to rehash when we're talking about how do we read the Bible. We looked at how the, the Bible was put together by the church. That's a huge point. It was produced by the church, for the church, under divine inspiration as an essential part of the total reality of God's covenant relationship with his people. So as Dr. Amir was explaining, who chose which books go in the New Testament? Why isn't Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Why isn't it Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas, Gospel of Mary Magdalene, Gospel of James? Why some letters, why not others? Who decided that? Well, the church did. Before there were any major splits, the church agreed on these things. And the church um, had a general, uh, consistent approach to interpreting the key texts of uh, Scripture. Outside of the total life and experience of the church, you cannot understand and correctly interpret the Bible. That's really, really important. And this is not... Oops. And glory be to God. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, Irenaeus, St. Irenaeus, okay. Um, 
uses an example. He says, imagine you have a mosaic of Christ and you pull this mosaic apart. So you have the Bible and you pull verse by verse apart, right? And then you rearrange it. If you're not rearranging it against a key or a legend or a matrix, then you could rearrange it into something else. And he uses an example. He goes, you might rearrange it like a dog or a fox. How do you know what you're going to rearrange it as? So when we read the Bible, we might read a verse, a chapter, a section. How do we interpret it? What's our key? What's the matrix which we interpret Scripture? In Irenaeus' time, because the New Testament as we know it wasn't really put together yet, it was called the Apostolic Hypothesis. It's also been called the Rule of Faith and various other names. But if you have not accepted this matrix, you can't interpret Scripture in the form of the Apostles or, the, or their successors or the church that Christ founded. In other words, how do we, what glasses do we put on when we read the Gospel? The glasses of the church. Not my own interpretation. And what does that mean for us practically? Well, if we attend the liturgical services of the church, you could really tell if something in the Bible or someone's interpretation of it is in line with what we're all about. That's a very quick test you could do. And then for some of the trickier stuff, you simply ask the church or see what does the church or what has the church interpret, how has the church interpreted it over time? So, for example, pre 451 AD, before any major schism, you have the writings of the church fathers, for instance, you could find them all online. You could search their interpretations for a certain passage and see that for the key passages, they were quite consistent most of the time amongst most of them. And in our tradition, we don't have um, infallibility of a certain person. So if a church father said this, it doesn't mean that they're right and everyone else is wrong. We see what's the spirit of the church? What did their church fathers agree on? As a, well, what was the spirit that they had agreed on? So from the starting point, it's, re it's important to remember that when we read the Bible, we read it through the eyes of the church. Okay? So I thought before we get into what do I do when I come to open my Bible, we just talk a little bit about the Old Testament. How do we read the Old Testament? Because generally the go-to is the New Testament. Or if people start the Old Testament, they usually start with Genesis and they're going pretty good. And then Exodus, not bad. And then it gets a bit fuzzy after that, especially when you start getting into uh, the laws. And you might pick up later um, when the kings and judges. And then you might get to Isaiah and it's really long and a bit dense. So how do we understand uh, the Old Testament? Do you know what that picture is? The disciples on the road to Emmaus, right? This is a key passage for us to understand the Old Testament. This is part of the matrix with which we could put this mosaic together, right? As you remember, the, the two apostles were walking um, on Easter Monday to Emmaus and they were complaining um, about what had happened a few days ago. And this is found in Luke chapter 14 from verse 13. And it says, They talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have one another as you walk and are sad? And then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered and said, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? Have you not heard or known the things which had happened there in these days? And Jesus, and he said to them, What things? So they said to him the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and they found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. So they're pretty upset because they had a lot of hope in this man called Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, who was really going to deliver them from the Romans. They hailed him as a king on Palm Sunday. A few days later, he was crucified. He's buried. They can't find him. Hope is lost, right? Look what Christ says. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Key word there is prophets. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? 
27. And beginning at Moses, so the first five books, and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures, the scriptures being the Old Testament, the things concerning himself. So he opened the Old Testament and showed them how all this is about him. What do we mean? Sorry. Okay, so here's a timeline, right? We're somewhere here, okay? The road to Emmaus is just before the book of Acts there, right? Imagine I'm on this side of the timeline, right? And I'm going to look at three examples on this side of the timeline. So we, Christ hasn't been crucified yet, right? We're on this side of the timeline. Say we're, we're like 300 years BC. And we're together as a family and we're talking about the story of Abraham and Isaac. And we're looking at how God tested Abraham and he took his only son Isaac um, to, be, to offer him as a sacrifice. But God said, it's okay, Abraham, you've t proven your faith to me. Um, the boy will live and a ram was sacrificed in his place. And we're talking about it and what are we all saying? Wow, isn't this a great example of faith? And then we close that story, right? And then Sharif decides to say, let's read Psalm 22 together. And we read this psalm. For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet, I can count all my bones, they look and stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And we all say, well, isn't that a beautiful psalm about suffering, and how the Lord is, if you read the rest of the psalm, how the Lord is with you when you suffer, and we all get nice and encouraged. Or we read the story of Jonah, and we say, well, um, we should never um, disobey God because at the end of the day, God will bring you back and His will will be done. Right? Remember, we're pre-crucifixion, right? We read these stories, we get some nice messages out of them. Now, let's pretend we're standing at the cross or just after. Let's read these three stories again. Obviously, Abraham and Isaac isn't simply about a story of faith, but it's about Christ. Abraham, the only son of Abraham, Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God. Abraham carries wood up a mountain to die, but comes back alive. Jesus carries wood up a mountain to die and comes back alive. So now all of a sudden we're standing at the cross, or like these two disciples, we're walking along with Christ and he's opening Moses and the prophets and he's telling us, oh, you slow of heart, how, how didn't you understand? And he's showing this story is actually not about Isaac and Abraham, it's about me. And then, for example, hypothetically, he would open Psalm 22, right? Now, Psalm 22 actually starts off with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In its first opening verses, that's the psalm, right? I don't know if you've been to the monasteries in Egypt, but when they come to give you the psalms in the monastery, they don't come up to you and say, um, like, uh, Psalm 25, Psalm 36, Psalm 37. The, the brother usually... Part of his training is he knows them off by heart and he just comes to you and he says the first, as a, as a monk, he'll come to you and you're just standing there without an agabeya and he'll say the first line, the Lord is my shepherd, I will love the Lord out of the depths, Lord I have cried, and then Lord I have cried. And that's it, right? Because they know the opening sentence, right? Imagine you're at the cross and, God, and Christ says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here we are. Psalm 22. Okay, I'll read. For dogs, of course, it's, there's, a spirit, there's a, se several contemplations on what that means, but this is one of them. Psalm 22, that psalm. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now we're clearly saying this psalm can only be about Christ. I can count all my bones. We know Christ didn't break any bones. They broke the bones of the two thieves. But Christ was already dead when they came to take them off the cross. So they didn't need to break the, his bones. They broke their bones because... If you're hung like this and you break your, bone, your legs, you can't go up to breathe, so you die. They look and stare at me, very obvious. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. We know Christ's inner garment, they cut up and they divided, but his outer garment was so nice that it was sewn one piece from the top to the bottom, so it didn't have a seam like this, right? So it was so nice, I said, let's not cut it, we'll just... Um, cast lots and see who's going to win. And Psalm 69, they gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar. So now, on the road to Emmaus, 2018, 
We're reading this psalm, and who's it about? Christ. And obviously then, Jonah and the whale is about Christ in the belly of the tomb for three days, comes out alive. Right? So what happened is, Christ, when, he, when it says in the Gospel of St. Luke, um, that he showed them these things concerning him for Moses and the prophets, essentially showed how the whole Old Testament, the message of the Old Testament, is all about Christ. And that's how we read it as Christians. And that's how the early church read it. They didn't read it as just a story. Like, you know, if you give, if you give a person who's inquiring about Christianity to the Bible and say, open Genesis 1 and read it, they're not going to get it yet, right? Gen- Gen- you don't start with Genesis. We start somewhere else. We'll talk about that in a sec. St. Paul talks about this. Okay. He says, just imagine this is a, a veil. He says in 2 Corinthians 3.12, Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. So we're reading the Old Testament before Christ and something's just gluing together or they might be historically but look at this because the veil is taken away in christ but even to this day when moses is read a veil lies on their hearts nevertheless when one turns to the lord the veil is taken away and all of a sudden the whole old testament is about christ and that's how christians from the beginning have read the old testament so one of the ways that we read the bible ourselves is we read the whole old testament to be about christ the, Old Test- the Bible is not a historical book, but it has history in it. It's not a scientific book, but it has science in it, right? But the main message of, or the main theme of the Old Testament is Christ. And the Gospel of John really just, from the beginning, hits your face. I didn't mean to say from the beginning, but it starts off with in the beginning. But just hits you at the beginning, all right? In the beginning was the Word. Mimics Genesis. And then, for example, John three fourteen. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Old Testament, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John draws this parallel straight away. If you look at St. Paul, he quotes 183 Old Testament passages, or quotes and paraphrases, apart from dozens of references to people, places and events in the Old Testament. He doesn't really talk much about the life of Christ. He talks about the crucifixion, the resurrection, pretty much that's it. And the rest is from the Old Testament. So some people are as, go as far as saying the primary text about Christ is the Old Testament. All right, all making sense? Okay. So Christians read the Old Testament as a revelation about Christ. So part of us reading the Bible means that we have to Read off this premise. As Father Thomas Hopko says, if they're unwilling to hold that even as a hypothesis, in other words, if they're willing to say, I'm going to try and understand the Bible, but I'm not going to do this by first trying to understand Christ and trying to see who Christ is. So if, if we don't start with Christ, someone says, look, I'm not starting with Christ. Like, just drop what you've just said. That's not how I'm going to approach the Bible. I'm going to approach the Bible in a different way, right? What does he say? Well, we Orthodox and ancient Christians would say, well, you're never going to understand it then because you can't do it in that way. It's just impossible to be done that way. It's simply impossible to be done that way. Very clear. There's actually no other way to read the Old Testament in the original way apart from reading it as about Christ. Okay. All makes sense so far? That's the Old Testament. So I thought we'll just do that. So what about when I'm reading the Bible at home? There's two things that we have to keep in mind. Context and purpose. And in context, two things. Historical context, literary context. So, literary context. Dr. Amir spoke about how when the books of the Bible were written, there were no chapter headings or verse headings, right? So, when we read a verse, we have to see where does it fit within the text, within that chapter, within that book. I personally think a handy thing to do when you come to read a book of the Bible is 
to first read the whole book, as much as you can of it in one sitting. And don't worry about what verse 3 means or verse 7 means. Just what's the general gist of the book? What are they trying to say? Right? So an example of that is Ephesians. The last few weeks we've been talking about, about the, the, the verse, Wives, submit to your own husbands. As to the Lord. That's verse 22. Right? Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, in, in the New King James Version, this one here, that beginning of that section is the verse is highlighted in bold. So, sometimes I want to say a new section. Do you know what verse 21 is? Submitting one another in the fear of God. Right? So, obviously I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but 21 Submitting to one another in the fear of God, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's just one verse before. Now imagine if we read all of Ephesians in one sitting, what would we find? Well, verses, chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all theology. Talk about Christ's saving work. Chapters 4, 5, 6 are all application, what that means to your life. If you read wives submit to your own husbands with chapters 1 to 3 in mind, then we get what we heard for the last few weeks from Dr. Amir. What he's trying to say is, husband, do what Christ did, die for your wife. A wife will submit the same way the church submits to Christ. How does the church submit to Christ? We just follow the lead. So the wife will follow the husband's lead and the husband's following Christ's lead. So at the end of the day, everyone's dying for each other. Isn't that a nice story? Right? It's not how some people really get arced up about it when you read it. So a handy thing to do is when I read something, what's the whole book about? What's that chapter about? Right? Because remember these numbers, the chapter and verse headings were um, added a thousand years ago. Now a good resource for that is, you might want to write this down, the Bible Project. It's a website. It has some nice videos that explain whole books of the Bible in 10 or 12 minutes. Okay? Very handy. Especially like, uh, check out the Leviticus one. Really good. And the numbers one. Very good. Okay? Very, very good summary. Then you've got historical context. What's the historical context of what's being said? You know, for example, that famous verse, if someone slaps you on your right cheek, give him your left. And all of us, well, not all of us, sometimes that's quoted in a sense of like, you know, if someone annoys you, allow them to annoy you a little bit more. You know, like, be, be like that. Well, let's read just that, that section. Okay, look at this. Matthew 5, 39. I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. So first one is slapping. Second one. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, give him your cloak also. So second one's about clothes. Third one. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Okay, three clear examples. What's the historical context of some of these? I'll, I'll just give... Well, maybe we'll go through all of them. If, I wanted to, if you wanted to slap me on my right cheek, how, how, do you have to, how, how are you going to slap me if you're right-handed? Backhand. backhand. Who do you slap with a backhand? No one, of course, no one slaps anyone. But in general, who, how, who, in that society, in that context? <coughs> slaves. That's beneath you. Like, bam. So when Christ says, give me your other cheek, what's he trying to say? Restorative action. Don't punch him back because it's not going to achieve anything. Give me your other cheek and say, look, if you want to slap me, go for it. But slap me as an equal. Put him in his place in a loving way. When someone wants your tunic, give him your cloak. You want my tunic? Take it. Actually, take my jacket. Make me cold and naked. See what you're doing. My favorite one. If anyone, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. What's the historical context of that? At that time, a Roman soldier could stop you as a Jew and say, hey, carry my stuff. And you have to for a mile. No more. No more. Legally, he's not allowed, allowed to ask you to, to carry it more than a mile. What Christ is trying to say is, he asks you to carry it a mile, say, no worries, brother. You want to take advantage of me? No stress. I'll carry it too. Okay? Restorative action. You get that through historical context. It's context. Second one, purpose. For example, the book of Revelation. All right? Book of Revelation, a lot of people try to use it as a predictor of the end of the world. Well, is that the purpose of the book of Revelation? Who's the book of Revelation written to? How many? Seven churches, right? What were the, what was, why was it written to those seven churches? What was happening in those seven churches? Well, you had some churches that were being persecuted and John the author was telling them, keep going. This is what you'll get if you keep going. 
and follow the example of the slain lamb, Christ, the heavenly Jerusalem. And some churches were being lukewarm, being lax, going a bit of after money, and the, the, the book of Revelation is trying to tell them, wake up, right? So if I understand the purpose of the book, it helps me when I come to read it, right? These are a few bits and pieces tips, and then at the end I'll give you a card that has five steps to contemplative reading. Okay, what happens if we read the Bible and we don't understand it? Well, the first step is to just focus on the parts that I do understand, and at least try implement the parts that I do understand. So I could be reading, I get stuck at verse 6, uh, I don't get it, I don't understand it, close, that's it. Or I read the Old Testament, I get to a few wars, uh, why is there all this killing? See you later. Father Thomas Hopker says, I would suggest very strongly, however, something else. I would suggest that the parts you do understand that do seem clear to you, you try to put them into practice. You try to make them part of your life. For example, many of the teachings of Jesus are clear that you can understand. Love your neighbor, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. They strike you on the one cheek, give them the other. Give to other people when they ask you. Give in secret, etc. Very simple. Just focus on the stuff that you, the verses that you understand. Focus on the sections that you understand. And Father Thomas Hopko, I recommend this in a second. He's like, when you start, start with, for example, the Gospel of Mark. Read it once. Focus on what you understand. Then read it again. Focus on what you understand more. Then read it again and keep reading it. And you find the parts that you don't understand shrink. But if I focus on the parts that don't understand, I'm a bit stuck. Right? So... I've given you a handout. Yeah. That makes sense to me in light of the New Testament. Because obviously the New Testament is a lot of practical things that can yeah. be um, put into practice. How do you do that with the Old Testament? Yeah. So with the Old Testament, I think um, that's where reading it in chunks sometimes helps. So for example, if you were to open Numbers and read one chapter at a time, you might end up in a chapter where they're talking about some technical uh, parts of the law they're like okay what am I getting out of that but if you read chapters at a time or you know these chapters are talking about that then you could sort of say okay I'm going to consider these this section of a certain book to be about this particular thing all right I get that I'll move to the next section so I think for like an example in the Old Testament in Genesis you have creation then the fall and then for the next 10 or so chapters, you could see that the author is just trying to show that humankind went like this. So Cain kills Abel, Tower of Babel, Noah's Ark. And then all of a sudden, Abraham. That's the sh turning point of the book. And the rest of Genesis talks about Abraham and his family. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So I think sometimes we have to identify what's the purpose of my Bible reading, which we'll do in a sec. Am I reading for contemplation? So am I reading to see like um, my quiet time, for example? Or am I reading as a Bible study? Am I reading the book of Genesis to see the story of Genesis, for instance? There's a lovely article by Father Matthew the Poor on how to read the Bible. I just chose some quotes. If you don't mind, I'd love to go through them together. He says, In reading the Bible, we aim at understanding and not at research, investigation or study. For the Bible is to be understood, not investigated. Now, this doesn't negate the need for scholarly work on the Bible. We know Father Matthew and his monastery were very into that sort of thing, right? Spiritual understanding centers on the acceptance of a divine truth, which gradually reveals itself, rising on the horizon of the mind till it pervades all. The gospel must be obeyed and lived through the Spirit before it could be understood. That's probably a summary of how we read the Bible. Obey it, live it before you understand like it says in the Psalms, taste and see. Experience first, then let's talk about it. In the early church, um, in, uh, sorry, in Jerusalem, in the 4th century, if you wanted to be baptized, you would go to the bishop. And we have an account of that. By, um, we know what St. Cyril, Bishop of Jerusalem, used to do. In Lent, you would attend every day a sermon um, about moral, moral uh, behavior, the creed, what faith is. You'll be prayed on. You'll pray together in the community. And then you'll be baptized on Easter Day. And for the week following Easter, you will be taught or they will explain to you what happened at the liturgy 
and what happened in baptism. And if you read it, and I think we're doing this in July, if you read it, you get to see what a liturgy looked like in the 4th century. So what happened is they, they weren't allowed to attend the full liturgy until they were baptized. But they weren't even told what happened. Why? They had to experience first, baptize on Easter, attend your first liturgy, experience it, then let's come together and talk. Taste and see. And that's what he's saying here. The gospel must be obeyed and lived through the Spirit before it could be understood. If anyone has true zeal, burning love and total obedience to God and carries out just one of the commandments of the gospel precisely, that person enters into the mystery of the gospel without being aware of it. Father Matthew the Poor is one of the deepest writers in our church. And look how simple this is. He's saying if you want to read the Bible, very simple. Read it, just do what it says and then you understand it. The spiritual understanding of the gospel and of God is the result of the formation of a relationship with God through obedience to his commandments. This is not simply an understanding of text and verses, but an understanding of the power of the word and knowledge of the life that springs from the verse based on experience, trust, evidence, and an unshakable faith in God. For example, if you want to know what the verse be anxious for nothing in Philippians means, what's the best way to find out? Go through it yourself. Ask someone who's been anxious, what's it like? Right? Like, I'm not trying to be sarcastic, but you know how a lot of times um, Facebook pages post verses and on cars you find verses and bookmarks have verses. Yeah, when do they stop being verses on stuff? And when do they start being real? When you actually experience it. For example, have you tried loving an enemy? It's really hard. Unless you're, like, I find it hard. Forgiving? It's pretty tough. Not judging. Okay. Controlling our tongue. It's hard stuff, you know. Like, you, you could sit and talk about it in a Bible study until the cows come home, right? But it doesn't mean anything until we live it out. And that's what he's trying to say. You want to read your Bible? Just read it and do it. Next half of the page, he talks about what he calls practical meditation. He says practical meditation comes through inspiration which the soul perceives as a result of its experience and its trials and struggles with the truth when it follows the commandments of the gospel. So in other words, you read the verse, um, rejoice always, and you try to be joyful, and you get to experience what that's like, you get to experience the challenges of it, and then you actually understand what that means. Thus, it is also supplemented by the illuminations and promptings of the Spirit, which we receive in due time, without having previously acquired knowledge of the things received, revealed. Okay, uh, I won't read the next one just for time. That one liner there. The gospel is a life to be lived, not principles to be discussed. Beautiful. How do you read your Bible? Read whatever you understand, just put in practice. Nothing more than that. We complicate things way too much. And then let the Holy Spirit guide us and reveal to us in due time and make us grow in the wisdom of God. Last paragraph, which I really like. We do not need to go in search of God, as if he were in hiding far away. We would simply exhaust ourselves in searching, imagining, meditating, and scrutinizing books. Yet the whole time he is standing before us at the door of our heart, never going away. The knocks at the door are his words. He never stops knocking all the days of our life, so that the spirit may wake from its slumber and distinguish the voice of its lover. God's directions to us are most often given through the reading and hearing of the gospel. When we are in a state of humility and when we pray with an open heart. Most common question, how do we know the will of God? What's the answer? Read the word of God. Simple. Now, uh, I think I've said this story, but I'll say it again. When we were in Egypt in January, at this monastery where he's from, we were, we, um, we were able to meet one of the hermits, right? This hermit's been a monk in this cave for 50 years. And we thought we're not going to be able to meet him, but we asked the abuna with us, can, one of the older abunas, can we please meet him? Uh, we, go, we know it's a heavy request, but you know he's a hermit, but we've heard of him, seen him on a specific documentary. He says, yeah, sure, let's go. Went for a walk. Arabi abuna, he comes out, old man on a stick, rapt to see us. Pure childhood simplicity, joy, depth, something on his face that you can't fake. Just certain grace, you know. He sat with us and his words were full of positivity. We didn't ask anything. Like he just, he goes, do you have questions? And then the old Abuna goes, Abuna Kallam, you know, speak from what, whatever you want to say. 
lovely words from the gospel or simplicity. Like, I'm trying to remember one of the things he said. He's like, um, the, the Lord says, do not fear. So, do not fear. So, after 50 years, that's, this, that's what he has. Very simple, very clear, but very deep. And then he said something nice to us. He said, when you read your Bible, whatever time you could spare in your busy schedule, as people who live in the world, read five minutes if your time allows, 10, 15, whatever your time allows. He was very nice about it. Have a diary. Write the verse that stood out to you from that passage. And write one or two lines in response to that. That's it. That was his guide. And he says, I have youth that do that. And they send me their diaries at the end of the year. And you read it and you see a huge change. And he says, some of them come and they said to me, Abuna, there's no way in the world I wrote this thing on January the 5th. Okay? Simple. Easy instruction. But what, what I really loved about that was what happened right after. Because it connects with this. You know how he says, we do not need to go in search of God as if he were hiding far away. He's there. At that point, I was so rapt that we saw him, but I was also really depressed. Because I'm like, this him and the other monk, the older monk that was with us, had this joy, simplicity. Some, you know when you see people, there's something, there's their aura, their face. Their, I don't want to use all these words, but... I think you know what I mean. Their presence. Okay? Has anyone ever seen someone like that? Their presence. There's something about it. You just can't put your finger on it. You know? And I go to him, Abuna, I realize you and the other Abuna are so peaceful, so joyful, so simple, not complicated. Like, it, you, you seem free. Can we have that? All right? And his response in Arabic, he doesn't even have to think. He just goes, yeah, well, Akhtar Kaman. In English, of course, probably even more than us. And when I read this, was it from the All Saint Monastery? It just really hit home because he said, We don't have to go anywhere. All you need is, like they say sometimes in Egypt, metre for metre, one metre, metre by metre. That's it. Can we have the joy, the love, the peace that our desert fathers had? Yeah, we can. Why? Because Christ is not limited by place, according to our fathers. I thought I would share that with you because I think it's very simple, practical tips on how to read the Bible. Whatever you understand, implement with faith, with humility, with love. What about if I want to say, okay, where should I start then? Father Thomas Hopko recommends this order. I really like it. Start with Mark, then Matthew, then Luke in that order. Mark, basic gospel, short, apocalyptic, talks about uh, times to come, sharp gospel. Matthew, what, the, what he calls the Torah gospel, as in it sort of follows the books of Moses. So for example, we see Moses... It goes up on the mountain to get the law. In Matthew chapter 5, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and when he was seated, the disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and spoke to them, saying, He gave them the law, but this time he opened his mouth, because he is God speaking. Moses had to go up, take the tablets. This is God speaking. So he draws these beautiful parallels between the Torah, between Moses and um, Christ. That's Matthew. Luke written for the Gentiles, historical, universal gospel. So you guys start Mark, Matthew, then Luke. Here it says, read them slowly and then read them again. And for the rest of your life, every day, read from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Then John. Then he says, read the rest of the New Testament. And whatever you don't understand, like Romans could be a bit heavy, just bracket it. Say, it's okay, I'll get there. Don't stop. Just say, footnote, I'll get there. He says, throughout that time, read the Psalms. And I think an awesome thing to have is to have a Psalter. So if you go to Amazon and you type in Psalter, P-S-A-L-T-E-R, you could buy a psalm book this small, pocket size, 450 psalms. And you could just read a psalm a day. Okay? A good one. There's a nice one. Um, it's an ESV uh, version. ESV. It's nice. Nice cover. Comes in a nice box. Okay? Then he says, read the Old Testament. Because you know the message of the gospel, you read the Old Testament, you could say, Christ is there, Christ is there, Christ is there. Easy. And he says, take your time. He says the worst thing that could happen is you don't finish it before you die, but you're going to be dead anyway, so like, it's not, no stress. He was very <laughs> blunt about that. Okay? I think that's a lovely guide. Start with Mark, then Matthew, then Luke. John, rest of the New Testament, whatever you don't understand, bracket. Go to the Old Testament, whatever you don't understand, bracket it. Come back to it. What's fascinating is all of us went through year 12, right? How much effort did we have to put 
into studying the year 12 novels that we had, the text. Heaps of effort, right? Do we put the same effort when reading the Bible? That's the, that's the difficult, that's a tough question, you know? Are we actually studying the Bible? So, I've printed out these guides. I haven't made them, I just printed them out. I'll tell you where we got them from. So sometimes I think um, there could be maybe two ways that we read, or two purposes that we read in the Bible for. Or the same purpose, but maybe in two, in two modes. Mode one is something that we're encouraged to do every day, or as frequently as possible, which is contemplative reading. It's like quiet time. It's like your, your daily food, right? Mode two is when you want to understand a book, okay? Mode two could be done once a week, twice a week, and it's probably best done over like an hour or so. We sit down, you grab Nehemiah, and you go, bam, I'm reading half of Nehemiah. And I'm going to buy a book on Nehemiah. I'm going to try and understand what's happening on Nehemiah, for example. Or I'm going to buy a guide to the Old Testament. I'm going to sit down. I'm actually going to do study about that, right? I won't talk about that, but I'll talk about this. So this is the contemplative stuff, right? So for the former one, a good way to, to start is just read the whole book first and then take it chapter by chapter and then look at it verse by verse. So if you could just pass these around. This approach is called Lectio Divina, sacred reading. It's very popular in the Catholic tradition. It's five steps to reading scripture for the purposes of meditation or quiet time. Made it on nice paper and small so you could put it in your Bible. Okay? Very nice. So five steps. This could take anywhere between 15 minutes, half an hour, as you, as you see fit. And I think it goes in line with what that monk was telling us. Whatever your time allows, do that, right? First step, prepare. Put yourself in the presence of God. Become quiet and offer yourself to God. So in other words, turn off your phone, sit down, say the Lord's Prayer, make sure everything's calm. Number two, read the passage out loud. If you want passage suggestions, the Gospels are always good to go with. It could be any part, of, like, obviously, like when you get to certain parts of Leviticus or Numbers, it might be a bit tough. But if you're um, really struggling to find a passage, if you just Google Lecto Divina passages, they usually give you some pa short passages, five or six verses, that have a really clear message in it. Two, read. Read the passage out loud. So people walking past the room will probably think you're insane because you're talking to yourself, but it's okay. Slowly allowing the words to resonate and settle in your heart. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. After a pause, reread the passage out loud. During these first two readings, listen for the word or phrase that catches your attention and lights up for you. So everyone's going to be different. So in what I just read, someone might be, the kingdom of heaven might be what comes up for you. Or for someone else, mourn. Or for someone else, comforted. Right? Step three, reflect. Take time to sit with your word or phrase. Reread the passage quietly to yourself and listen to where the word connects with your life right now. Enter into the scene in your imagination. Carefully watch the people if it's a story. Listen to how they interact. What do you hear and experience as you watch and listen? And something they didn't write here that you could do is repeat that verse over and over again. Or that word. Okay, so it could be Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Over and over again for a couple of minutes. Okay? Step four, pray. Talk to God about the word or phrase he has highlighted and what's coming up. Might be helpful to journal, as we were just talking. How has God addressed you in this word and invited you to respond? Allow the scripture to lead you into a prayer response. So we've prepared ourselves, we've read it, we've reflected on the part that stuck out to me. So that's what Abuna was talking when he said you write the verse in your diary. You've prayed about it, you've come up with a response and you're going to write those couple of lines. And then step five, rest. Rest in God's presence, deeply receive God's word and rest in his presence and love. So what you do, give yourself some time to wait. Be still before you re-enter life as usual. Take God's word to you with you throughout the day. Return to it and remember it all day long. Stay with God until you feel prompted to leave. Beautiful. Five lovely steps. Some people do it before work. Some people do it before they sleep. Some people do it throughout the day. Some people do it at lunchtime when no one notices as you see fit. 
I've found this personally handy, you might find it handy. Give it a shot. Okay? Think, final thought. From Father Thomas Hopke. When you read the Bible as the Word of God, it lacerates you, it judges you, it depresses you sometimes. Like I think Father Lev Gillet said, don't ask the Bible any questions, let the Bible ask you questions. So don't say, what does this mean? Let the Bible ask you what it means. Or who are you in the story? Look what he said. It lacerates you, it judges you, it depresses you sometimes. Father Matthew the Paul said something really, a little bit confronting. He said, sometimes you read the Bible and you forget what was said. He said, you didn't forget. He goes, you didn't like it, that's why you, did, you didn't remember it. But sometimes you remember things very, very easily. Things that hit home. He said, you probably didn't like it, that's why you didn't remember it. Because sometimes things condemn us. Because, wow, that verse is a judgment to me. You get despondent. How can I ever do this? And how can I ever understand this? And all this kind of stuff. Well, the fact of the matter is that ultimately it's simple. We're the ones who are complicated. Would you agree? Based on what you've seen from Father Matthew the Poor, who's deep writer and thinker, look how simple his words were. We have the complexes, not the scriptures, but do it. Just do it. Do it with a pure heart. Do it with an open mind. Do it with a desire to understand. Do it with an attitude of seeking, even of calling upon the God that you may not believe in. And do it in the proper taxis, like order, in the proper order. Nice final thought. Okay? So just to summarize very quickly, first practical tip, read. <laughs> Second practical tip, prayerfully. Remember the Old Testament is about Christ. Focus on the things that you understand, not the things that you don't understand. Look at the context and the purpose. So we have the contemplative approaches here. And it's important that as Christians, if the Word of God is central to my life, and if it's something I really don't understand, that I put in as much effort to understand it, the same way that I would in any aspect of my life, if I don't get something. So a lot of it really comes down to effort. And if you're really keen, this could be a bit of a plug, there's about 10 different units on biblical studies offered at the Theological College, for those who really want to go in and, and do that, and uh, look in depth. If, if that's not for you, there are a lot of resources out there, a lot of books that could help you understand the Bible generally, certain historical contextual things. Oh, can I finish with just one example of that? Do you remember um, when, and you could, you could get this through what's called word studies. So there's books out there that study the original Greek word for certain passages and tell you how that changes maybe how we read the passage in, um, in English. Do you remember when um, Christ asked Peter if you love him? If he loves him? How many times did he ask him? When did he get upset? Why? Because he thought he Christ his previous. So we think of three times, three times he denied him. Yeah, and that, there's nothing wrong with that. It could be uh, one of the reasons. But when we look at the actual Greek word, we find something interesting, right? John 21, 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. So if he said, yes, Lord, you would think that's it. But he asked him again. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? But didn't he say that really twice? Why are you grieved? Because he said to you, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Then Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. We know there are several Greek words for love. Two of them are agapi, selfless love, and philo, affectionate, friendly love. Right? When you read it in Greek, and these are called interlinear Bibles, and you could just Google that, interlinear, and it has the Greek word with the English word under it, and if you click the Greek word, it tells you what the definition is, what other, where, where else you could find it, what it means, and how many different ways you could look at it. Right? This is how it is in Greek. Agape means selfless love, Christ-like love. Philo means affectionate love. 
Simon, son of Jonah, do you agape me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I follow you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you agape me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I follow you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. Starting to make a bit more sense now. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you follow me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you follow me? Now we know why he was upset. And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I follow you. It's like God was saying, do you agape me? He said, I follow you. And then the Lord came to his level and said, do you follow me? He was upset that he said, do you follow me? He goes, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I follow you. And then look what he says. He explains what agape means. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are older, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you wish. What's he speaking about? How St. Peter will die. How do we know that? was the next verse. Then he spoke, signifying by what death he will glorify God. And when he had spoken these, he said to him, follow me. You will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. How was Peter crucified? Upside down. Stretch out his hands, right? So what does agape mean? To die for Christ. That's what that means. But see how that passage takes a whole different... Or deeper meaning as soon as you see the word study right and all these resources are available out there to us and if we just put the effort into all of that then it'll be great some people love it so much they go out and learn greek there are probably 10 places in melbourne that you could learn biblical greek and there are all these books out there but a good place to start is an interlinear bible it has the greek word and the english word and you click the greek word and it gives you all this information on the greek word that's enough for me. Any questions? Comments? Okay. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. Uh, next week, we'll be starting our new series. Marco will be guiding us through... Marco and one other guest speaker will be guiding us, th guiding us through five weeks on apologetics. Um, so, talking about defending our faith.